Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by my co-host Gail Schimmel. Good morning everyone. Gail, you are looking cheerful this morning. Does this mean your writing week has gone well? (laughs) Fiona, I don't have a writing week at the moment. (laughs) So I'm on this hiatus from writing and I'm going to say something. You know, I'm often asked in interviews, how do I fit everything in? And you're a full-time job and you're a parent and you're a wife. People seem to think being a wife takes up time. I don't know if I'm well, doing it wrong, but I don't find I don't it very time-consuming. I don't think completely wrong, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, how do you fit it all in? And now that I'm not writing, I've got a question for other people. What do you do all day? Mm-hmm. Like, I, because writing is not just the time you spend writing. It's also the time you spend thinking about what you're writing. Yes. So you always have a, a side brain thing going on, mm-hmm. which is in your book and trying to work out things. And even if you aren't conscious of it, you're undoing a plot tangle. And I'm doing it a little bit because I am still working on Katie Gale's stuff, but there's a there's a space in my head that's not usually there mm-hmm. and there's a space in my day that's not usually there. So next time somebody who's not a writer asks me how I fit it all in, I'm going to ask, what is it you do all day that's stopping you writing? And, and I'm scared that that sounds patronizing and I think it's maybe because I often joke about how I don't exercise and maybe that is part of it. Exercise takes up a lot of time and people have other things and other hobbies and other side hustles but I'm a bit lost without my writing. So please let me live vicariously through you. How has your writing week been? Well, what you've just said has reminded me of that old saying that being a writer is like having homework for the rest of your life, seven days a week. And it it is like that, what you're saying about part of the brain being permanently engaged. So, yeah, if if it's like having homework, well, then I have gone back to grade one. I really have because I think I've spoken on here before about how I'm involved in trying to adapt one of my books to become a screenplay and – the outline that I did has kind of been tweaked as much as it can be tweaked. And now I've been given the go ahead to turn it into an actual script, an actual Ooh. screenplay. And I was told that what I need is the software final draft. So I downloaded it and there were a few hitches there. And then I started playing around with it and trying to acquaint myself with it. And I feel like a babe in the woods. I don't know what I'm doing. It's so new. The learning curve is so steep. I'm feeling completely overwhelmed. I'm just like, which button must I push? Not how can I turn myself into the next Tarantino, you know? Um, I really don't know what I'm doing. I suppose it's salutary to be knocked back down to that beginner stage again. But yeah, I'll, I'll let you know how this all goes. My children would ask if you have watched a YouTube video. Yes, there are all these training videos and they talk so fast. And I'm like, wait, slow down, <laughs> hitting the pause button. Hang on, what must I do? <laughs> I think one's ability to learn new things does decline with age, I have to say. Yeah, so frightening, so frightening. And, and one wants to be the sort of person who can learn new things and embraces new things and doesn't go, I'm just going to do this in Word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I must say in your shoes, I'd probably be going, I'm just going to do this in Word. Yes, I'm going to write the name of the person and what they're saying and everyone else can figure it out. (laughs) Um, So Gail, speaking of Tarantino, have you been watching or reading or listening to anything great lately? Certainly not Tarantino. Um, (laughs) My brain is not not at that level at the moment. 
I've had an interesting reading experience because I came late to fantasy. And as a result, I haven't read a lot of the, the basic fantasies that people read either in their teens or early adulthood that are kind of the canon of the, of the genre. Mm. And a friend of mine kind of staged an intervention and forced me to read the first book in the His Dark Materials trilogy by oh Philip Pullman, yes, yes. which is called Northern Lights. And yes. this is one of the, those series that everyone who's read fantasy mm. for a long time, they've read it and they all love it. Yes, yes, yes. And I love the name His Dark Materials. It evokes a certain feeling in me. It evokes a certain feeling of where the plot should go. Mm. And every time I've looked at it on Kindle, I've read the blurb and I've realized that the plot is not in line with my feelings. Right. And as a result, I haven't read it. And my friend staged an intervention and gave me a hard copy of the book because mm-hmm. she knows that once I have a hard copy of a book she's lent me, I find it very hard not to read it. Right. And I read it. And I liked it. Mm-hmm. But I did not love it. Okay. And in fact, at one point with speed reading, it got a little bit too fantastical for me with bears and hot air balloons and the people who know it and love it know the scene I'm in, cold air, hot air balloons, witches, bears, and it just all got a bit much for me. And I was speed reading and then I got into it again at the end and got into the plot again, but I won't be reading the next one. So it's been interesting that what I thought I would feel about it has been a bit what I feel about it. That's very interesting. I've, I tried it once. I think I got a couple of chapters in and I realized it wasn't for me. And that, that spark that just lights people up and makes them say it's their favorite book of all time. I mean, I have a friend whose grandchild is named Lyra after the main character, oh, wow. you know, because it's, it's so deeply in their family. I think you have to read it young. I yeah, think it's yeah. high fantasy and it connects with a younger imagination better than my aged imagination. I hear you. What about you, Fiona? I hope you haven't been disappointed by what you're consuming this week. I haven't. Um, I think I, I warned you last week that I was not going to be done talking about Yellowface for a while. <laughs> um, and I am not done. I've, I've finished it. And I've been browsing some of the reviews because some of them have been so negative. And it's interesting to me that people are so put off by an unlikable main character, who, especially if they're also the narrator. So I normally am, and it's making me a bit anxious about reading it. I'm going to read it because when you tell me to read a book, I do. Good. But I am anxious about it because I have recently abandoned a book because I just... There were two protagonists and I hated mm-hmm. them both. And everybody, people love this book that I've abandoned and I don't ever name and shame books. I'm not going to name and shame it, but I'm anxious about Yellowface. <laughs> it's brilliant. You have to read it and tell me what you think. But yeah, it's just really interesting that you can see the authorial voice is deliberately creating her such. And also she's a, a character that you feel ambivalent about. Every now and again, you read something she says and you're like, yeah, good point. It is like that. You've got a good point. And then at other times you think, oh my goodness, this is egregious and terrible. And how can you be like this? So your, your emotions kind of seesaw, but I never for one second lost interest. I found her so compelling and fascinating. And she is your only way into the story. And I'm sure she never gets into a hot air balloon to fly with some witches and a bear wearing armor. <laughs> no. 
we can suggest that perhaps. <laughs> Our guest today is Nahama Brody. Nahama has had a long and distinguished career in the space of writing and journalism. She is the author of the Joburg book, the Cape Town book, two novels, which include Knucklebone in 2018, Three Bodies in 2020. She uh, adapted her PhD for a more general audience, and that came out in 2020, Femicide in South Africa, then most recently Farm Killings in South Africa in 2022, and I believe we have lots more to look forward to. Welcome, Nechama, and thank you for your time. As uh, um, Anton Haber asked me recently, why was I so, what was my morbid fascination with death and killings? So, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> lots of fun things to talk about. <laughs> Nechama, let's jump right in and tell us how has your writing week been? I think my writing week has been mostly emails. Um, I've been traveling and, uh, now that I'm finding myself in a more academic space, there's a lot of admin that comes with the role, uh, communicating with students and, uh, helping students to get their writing in order, which is an interesting process. Both of you will know trying to help other writers produce work, uh, not always for books, but, um, class submissions, uh, dissertations, that sort of thing. It's, um, it's an interesting process. Uh, it's good to help people. So I think, I hope I've helped more people write than I've written myself this week, <laughs> this week. Um, and generally when you, when you have a really good writing week, when you aren't traveling, when the emails are written, what does your writing week look like? So at the moment, I feel like I have three different brains, maybe five. I don't actually know. It's a bit like one of those Sally Field kind of Sybil moments where two weeks ago, I was busy finishing a paper on Foucault um, for a conference that I was attending. So I had to write this kind of multi-thousand word essay on theoretical frameworks around violence. And I felt like an absolute imposter. Mm -hmm. um, the entire time I felt like I was, I was like, I'm an absolute idiot. And when I present this, everyone is going to know that I'm an idiot. Why am I doing this? Why am I not writing about things that I'm more comfortable about? So, so half of my brain has to, well, I don't know half. That's bad maths. Um, part of my brain has to be sort of allocated to thinking through those sorts of things. Yeah. And I, amazingly, the paper actually turned out okay. And people did not yet in public say that I was an idiot. So we'll, we'll see. There's still opportunity during further review processes. Um, but in addition to that, obviously, I have other writing to do where I'm trying to, I've written a lot about death in the last several years. And a lot of my academic research work focuses on violent death. And so I'm trying to step away for the next year or so and to not work on that in my book writing um, and to give myself a gap to look at fiction again, which is necessary. Although the fiction will also involve death, obviously, because, I mean, I'm not writing cozy, happy things. Oh, but I've been reading funny things, but I'll tell you about that later. I've got so many questions, but I'm going to let Fiona ask a question before I go into all of that. You have operated in the space of fact-checking. Um, you've worked with Africa Check. You have trained fact checkers. How did you get into that space? What drew you to it? How does one sort of qualify to work in that space? I mean, if, if I'm honest, the whole reason I got involved with Africa Check in the first place is this really terrible legacy that I've had since I was a child of always wanting to be right. Um, <laughs> and, um, 
to, I mean, even my family, in the days before we had Google, they would ask Nahama because I was curious. So I knew lots of things, but I also always wanted to be right. So if I didn't know something, I would go and find it out so that I could be right in future. And quite funnily enough, about 10 or 11 years ago, Africa Check posted something on their website about how Johannesburg wasn't the world's biggest urban forest. And as uh, that's we all love that fact. And we love that fact. And so I just, I think I was still quite close to the Joburg book at that stage. That came out in 2008. And then we did the second edition a couple of years later. And I was very connected to the sort of need to defend Joburg. And I went and I looked at what they'd written. And I sort of did a very informal, on my own, like a fact check of how they had framed their argument. Oh, they said Joburg wasn't the biggest man-made forest. And I was like, well, Obviously, it's not the biggest man-made forest. It's not a plantation. Um, you know, so, and then I had to go and look up all these facts around forests and trees. And urban and, versus man-made. Um, all of that sort of stuff. And, and it turned into this really quite funny sort of exchange. And I, as a result, started engaging with then the editors and the directors of Africa Check. And they were a very small operation at the time. And I sort of joined them as a, as a fact checker, as a reporter. So when things would come up, I would look into certain issues. And it was an amazingly eye-opening experience. I'd, at that stage, been a journalist already for nearly 20 years, probably. And it transformed my practice as a journalist. And in fact, it prompted me to go back to academia later. But that's a, maybe a separate process. It really made me aware of how this need to always be right was sometimes in conflict with what the facts actually were. And it forces you to sort of step back from your own positionality and say, well, rather than a, rather than trying to find facts that confirm what I already believe, can I approach this in a way that looks at, well, what do the facts tell me? And that was really important. And then through that, my relationship with Africa Check evolved. And over the years, eventually, I joined them to set up a new division where we wanted to actually start training other journalists to be more rigorous in their fact-checking and also be transparent. So it's not just about being right. It's also about sharing your information with other people. So nobody should be expected these days to take your word for it. Mm -hmm. You know, trust me, I've done my own research. Mm. Um, or even trust me, I'm a doctor. Whatever that is, is transparency is really an essential part of accountability and credibility. So it taught me so many valuable things. And then over the years that I worked with Africa Check, had the opportunity to work with journalists across the continent, which was it's just exciting and rewarding and reminded me of how many challenges journalists in other countries face. So we are quite fortunate here in South Africa in, in many respects. We, by and large, do not have our journalists being arrested on a Friday and locked up for the weekend or beaten up, um, which happens to a lot of journalists, even in our neighboring countries. And even to working with uh, school children, we did a training program at one point with high schoolers. I worked with uh, colleagues in fact-checking in Argentina, and we, we they had a program that they'd been rolling out with high school students around the model United Nations program. And so we even taught high school students how to do fact-checking, and it was exciting and brilliant. And then I had to step back from that when I was finishing my PhD because I needed more time to focus on my thesis. But the skills that I learned from that time with Africa Check really changed my professional practice and my personal practice permanently forever and for the better. I mean, so much danger of slipping into talking about my day job here because there's a huge overlap. So I'm not going to do that. And instead, I'm going to ask you about, I, I want to know, we haven't asked you yet, which we often start with your superhero origin story. How did you come to be what you are? How did you, you know, what is your story? How did you come to be a writer? But I particularly want to know, how did you come from being a curious little girl to someone obsessed with death? 
you've just said you write about death, even if you go on to lighter fiction, it's still going to be about death. How did that happen? During the course of a lot of my journalism work and my fact-checking work, so some of the earliest um, large fact-checks that I did for Africa Check related to misrepresentations of crime and crime statistics. Mm. And it became very clear that there was, you know, this narrative around crime that completely misunderstood how crime actually worked. And part of that was due to, was around femicide, for example, um, that we knew most women were at a highest risk of violence from their intimate partner or current or former partner. Um, but the way that it was represented in the popular narrative and in the media was that we should be afraid of the stranger in the dark alley. And this applies to even violence against children. Um, and I mentioned this often even when I give talks around violence is kids are taught to be afraid of um, you know the stranger in a van or in a dark alley who offers you sweeties but actually your biggest threat is a close male family relative mm-hmm. um, and it also became clear this was around probably 2012-2013 when after a period of declining crime rates, our violent and contact crime rates started to increase again, and they've unfortunately sustained that trend since then, Um, where these narratives around crime, to me, the false narratives around crime, also presented obstacles in identifying solutions. Um, When people wanted to leave South Africa, they didn't want to leave because of BE or even the corruption, they want often what prompted them to leave was the crime, was fear of crime. Mm. Um, what caused despondency in people was fear of crime. We were spending untold fortunes on private security that wasn't working to stop or change the profile of crime. And even at that time, it was very clear to me that this was a very important thing to try and understand in order to make all of our futures better um, and safer, obviously. Safety is a, a really big issue. We want to feel safe. Um, and I'm quite a proactive person. You, know, you should all go and get all your health checks and take all your, well, some of your vitamins. And <laughs> you should definitely be vaccinated against all the important things. Um, and with, you know, how could we do this with violence and crime? So that sort of started a journey into investigating it more deeply. Um And I'd been wanting to go back and study for a while. And then when I started working on femicide, that became a logical uh, sort of area to focus on. And through there, I've also realized that, again, confirmed that the narratives we have around who is at risk, who's the biggest threat are are really skewed, but also that we don't understand how we got here. Um, You talk about a superhero origin story. So what is the villain origin story in South Africa's case? Why are we so violent? Um, there are many countries around us that have incredibly high levels of poverty, very high levels of unemployment, that have violent colonial pasts. Um, okay, apartheid was a particular, you know, regime, but other countries had maybe not too dissimilar regimes. Um, it, and when we look at this, and people have been asking this for years, Anthony Altbeker asked this in his, you know, his book, uh, Country at War with Itself, that was quite came out some years ago now. Why are we so violent? Um, what is this absolute hatred that people or, or apathy or something in between the two that people here have for each other that we can treat other humans and people the same way that we do in this country? And we don't have a good answer for that yet. And so part of my exploration into in particular death, violent death, is really trying to understand not just in the present, but also in the past, how has our past informed our violent present? 
in the hope that if I produce enough good information, it might provide some keys to unlocking what could we do to change this. Well, I have seen you put some of the findings of your research up on social media, and I've seen the pushback that you've got because the facts that you have uncovered and provided with good sources doesn't vibe with someone's feelings. And I'm very interested to know how we got to this place where facts have become a partisan issue, where simply saying, uh, is it raining outside? You look out the window, yes, it's raining outside, is not the end of the debate. Just uh, a, a simple statement of fact with good accreditation does not end the debate. Where people's beliefs and feelings and vibes have started to trump, and maybe that's the source of the problem, have started <laughs> to trump actual facts. And I'm sure this is something that you've tracked, especially as it has come into South Africa. What is the origin of this? I think it's part of just being human. And again, maybe everybody has internally their own version of wanting to always be right. People don't like being wrong. We don't like being called out. We don't like being corrected because it makes us uncomfortable or it makes us embarrassed. Mm -hmm. On top of which, all of us have to a greater or lesser extent a number of sort of uh, cognitive systems and biases that are – in our heads for very good reasons, we need them to process information about the world around us because without structured systems, we would be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. um, we'd be like some sort of AI receiving this large model of information just whoosh, you know, dumped into your brain. We have to be able to sort information out in a way that's meaningful to us. What we know, though, and I suppose if, if any of my students or future students are listening, people are often quite averse to integrating theory with journalism. But what theories and, you know, social science theories and humanities theories teach us is how these structures of knowledge are problematic because they're also built around flawed um, patriarchal systems, racist systems. Our whole system of what we say is knowledge and how we think knowledge is acceptable. You know, knowledge is something you get in a book. It's written. So uh, oral knowledge and oral histories is not acceptable because that's not formal enough. So it's obviously – so even those systems that we've inherited, our, our very basic understanding of how knowledge should be captured is based on um, colonized Western European systems typically. Um that have for hundreds, for thousands of years, up until actually kind of the last century, tended to exclude women, people of color, minorities, religious minorities. And so our systems of knowledge are kind of, well, they are what they are. We can't change them, but maybe we have to be uh, blunt about what they are. The challenge within that is a lot of people um, have inherited systems of knowledge that continue to be racist and patriarchal. And within that, it must be quite a struggle to understand why other people suddenly also want rights or access to the cheek of them. I know that's <laughs> the you know the absolute cheek, and you know, um, I mean, even this notion. If we look at Britain right now, um, or well, let's let's talk about England rather than Britain, shall we say? Because you know, let's let's acknowledge that the Scots and the Welsh and Scots the Irish to are differ. really not actually the same. Um, this whole idea of a meritocracy. Uh, doesn't exist. There is no such thing. We know that, in fact, there was a great graph that was shared the other day about how uh, wealth was a deciding factor in gaining access to Ivy League universities in the States, even mm -hmm. once you'd adjusted for everything else. There's no meritocracy. Um, it just sort of 
the world has worked this way because people who were slave owners and who had lots of money and, you know, continue to have lots of money have unevenly and unequally distributed privilege and access. Um, so, so we understand that, you know, those systems are in place. But for people who believe in a meritocracy that why can't everybody just, you know, I worked really hard to get here. Um, it's nothing it's, to do with the fact that I'm a white man with a private school education. I totally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my myself. parents <laughs> with my own bootstraps. Yeah. My parents went to university and gave me my first car. And, and this is actually true. My parents went to university. They gave me my first car. My university studies were paid for. I didn't have to pay for a loan. I had a house to stay in. I didn't have to pay my own rent. But I did work really hard. But, you know, I can also acknowledge that I had privilege. And so for a lot of people um, – I suppose maybe we were raised with the idea that there was a meritocracy, um, which was a false idea that was created by people to continue to perpetuate this fake meritocracy. And so to sort of be challenged in that is like, well, that's not how the world works. Maybe it's a bit like um, we're all a little bit older now. We have older children and there's a certain technology gap, shall we say, um, where there's certain technology that I don't know how to use as much anymore. And I have to ask my children to help me. Can you do this or fix that? So, uh, it's a bit like when my granny couldn't work out how to use the VHS, you know, those old yes. the tape machines to record, um, in those days, Miss Thought in Miami, where she would, <laughs> she would record the, the TV show and then she would also record the simulcast on the radio that. at the same time on tape. And, and she'd always the get it, time. yeah, you'd have to play them at exactly the same time, but she would always get it wrong because, you know, she wasn't the VHS generation. Well, it is quite hard it's to get it at the same time. <laughs> so, so she would, I wonder if there's kind of like societally that there are so many people who are sitting essentially in that VHS gap where they don't have the skills to understand what's going on around them and they feel threatened. I'm trying to be generous here rather than critical because there is a large part of me that wants to kind of shake people and say, are you absolutely mad? You're just a bigot. Um, and it's, it's hard not to do that, but also you don't get a good response generally um, when People don't also respond very well to being called a racist or a bigot. Funny, hmm? Strange, <laughs> I've, I've recently had an insight over the last few years through my, my day job and through my parenting that when we get most angry is often when we deep down know we're wrong. Do you think that's an accurate observation, that, that when people are really getting angry with you, um, when they're reacting badly to what you've put out there as facts, it's, it's, you've touched, you've touched them on a nerve. I don't actually know. I suppose I can only go by my own response. And again, with kids, it's a challenge. So when my kids call me out on certain things, I'm, I'm trying to learn as I, as I approach 50, right? I'm trying to learn how can I be less stressy and less reactive or responsive in anger or, or snapping at them in particular. Um, and how can I be, pause for a moment because these are actually things that I teach people to do in terms of facts or assessing things. It's like, well, maybe I don't actually have everything here. Uh, can I pause for a moment? Because instinctively me, um, you know, the woman who used to box literally and does karate and everything wants to be like, well, fine, you slap at me. I'm smacking you back immediately faster, you know? Um, and maybe that's not the, that's, is that response going to achieve the outcome that I want? Um, is this wisdom? Knowing that, like, maybe I should pause because maybe what I'm doing isn't <laughs> going to get me where I want to be. I, I do think that I feel shame, not anger, when I'm wrong. Possibly, and some yes. people might express that differently. Um, I think maybe that is the key of what I'm saying. When you feel shame, you often, instead of stepping into the shame, react with anger. Mm. 
too too far because shame is a horrible feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. And then we moved into the delightful period of COVID and lockdowns. And suddenly, well, it, it, it wasn't that sudden in world terms, but in South Africa, it was fairly sudden where vaccines became a hotly contested political issue. What was it about? Because I, I know you track these things quite closely and you were in that contested space fighting every day. What was it that was so polarizing? Have you thought about that? So first of all, when you kind of look at things over time, it's important that we note that the sort of opposition to measles vaccines in particular isn't new. Yes. It just yes, became, yes. in South Africa even, um, it became sort of more prominent or more center stage uh, after COVID. And this was something I wrote about even in our first year of COVID where I could see that the anti-lockdowners at the time and a particular group of people mm-hmm. – um, misleading, dishonest people um, who were given far too much of a public platform by the media initially, I could see immediately that they were going to pivot into anti-vaccine narrative, even though at that point we didn't yet have publicly available vaccines for COVID. Right. And of course they did. They immediately pivoted into what was going to gain, gain them the most media attention, the most uh, what, and they polarized it because that's actually what drives their engagement. Polarization drives engagement. When we all agree on things, it drives, it's, it, it lowers the engagement rate. So um, anyway, th- it was obvious to all of us looking at it f- from the outset that the anti-lockdowners were going to pivot into being anti-vaxxers. Do you but think it, it was that cynical? It was a, a matter of we don't believe this, but we are going to pursue it because it will drive engagement. Or was it not as clear thinking as that? I don't know if they tell them that in their brains. I don't know if they are that straightforward. Um, we'll come back to that in a moment. I just want to say is even before then, we know that measles vaccination rates in South Africa declined um, in a similar proportion to the way that measles vaccination rates declined in, for example, the UK. And those were directly related to the false information that people like Andrew Wakefield had put out where we'd seen over years a decline in the uptake in MMR vaccines, mm. not in rural areas because of stockouts, but in urban areas where people mm. have access. I have Suburban friends, areas. colleagues <laughs> who chose not to vaccinate their children. Um, against measles for various reasons. And so we'd seen, that's why over many years before COVID, we'd seen periodic measles outbreaks in different provinces. And usually they were driven in urban areas by people who had specifically chosen not to vaccinate their children. Um, what we, it's very hard to understand the pathways of kind of cognition and the choices that people make internally in their minds around false information and choosing which narrative to pursue. There's so many factors that could be at play. One could be really a deep bias, maybe a deep religious um, uh, bias or a deep communal thing where in my religion or in my community, we believe this one thing very strongly. Um, maybe you could link that to maybe single issue voters. So people who are very opposed to women's right to access termination of pregnancy uh, because it conflicts very, very deeply with one of their religious beliefs. They don't, they're not able to contextualize it within the other religious beliefs, mm-hmm. um, and how they may combat each other. So a woman's right to life versus a fetus's right to life, which actually do come into conflict sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one aspect that we'd look at. What we've seen over the last, we don't have a clear answer on this either, by the way, and we don't know how to fix it. What we do know is that giving people more or better information is not the fix. 
So it's not about the facts. It's not actually about the science. So it's not just going to somebody and saying, here is more information about vaccines, vaccine safety, vaccine effectiveness. This will fix your misguided views. It is somewhere deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And that's why when I say uh, for there's two levels for individuals, Gosh, who knows what an, an individual circumstances are? There's a mix of nature and nurture in terms of what they choose to believe, what they're able to understand, um, whether or not they trust figures of authority. So what we do see is that people who have lower trust in the state um, also have low, have higher confidence in conspiracy theories, for example, or conspiracy-like theories, because they do believe that the state is manipulative, controlling, and that it's doing something underhanded against its citizens, or that it's capable of doing that. And I always laugh, because I think governments are doing those things all the time, but they're not what people think that they're doing. Um, <laughs> and they're not that organized no, about how they really, do anything, not, least of all um, conspiracies. But there are organizations and prominent individuals who operate at a slightly different level. And there, I think we have to be cynical um, as they are. Um, there are people in this country who are prominent media type individuals as well as organizations where their entire claim to fame is leveraged off outrage. Mm. Mm. And it can be very, you know, rewarding financially. Um, for some, for some people, if we look at in America, some of the podcast hosts where we know they've made huge amounts of money by peddling outrage and then using that to sell multivitamins, for example. Mm-hmm. Fiona, maybe we should be more outraged about things. I think you should be more outraged and you should, you need to, will go you need to be roof. more outraging. You need to, more, and then you need to sell a line of vitamin supplements. Thank you That's for that the solution plan. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. It's, uh, I give that to you for free. Um, what we've also seen is, for example, there were studies done on people who were involved during the January 6th capital riots in the States, where they looked at how social media in a way had radicalized certain people. It hadn't radicalized them in terms of what they actually believed. It sort of had an inverse pathway where they realized these were people who, let's say, they were normal or they had middle ground views prior to January 6th and over a period of months before the riots what had happened was they individuals had noticed that when they posted something that was a little bit more outrageous they got a larger response on social media and the way our brains respond to affirmation or criti- criticism on social media is kind of the same. It's a bit like a dog. The dog doesn't know if you're shouting at it or saying, good boy, really, but it's attention. Mm-hmm. And any attention that you get on social media pings. It creates kind of little endorphin pathways in your brain. And so for people to get outrage and to get support was like they were getting so many hits in their brain. And that needs to be amplified over time. So what they, what people would start doing was they would be posting more outrageous stuff in order to pursue a greater hit because obviously the, the impact of the hit wanes after time and you need a, a bigger rush. It's a mm. bit like drugs. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is the, the mm-hmm. metaphor here. Exactly like drugs. And over time, the more people posted outrageous and polarizing stuff, the more they came to believe that that's what they believed. Right. And all they were was chasing that reinforcement, that, that little ping, as you say, in the brain. Right. They weren't necessarily changing what they believed at heart, but they were just chasing those pings. So we do know that also in terms of kind of cognitive processes, when something is repeated often, you do believe it. So mm-hmm. this can work for misinformation. By the way, it also has a protective effect. It can work for fact-checking as well. It can work for a correction. So repeating the same information over and over and over again in multiple forms has a, has a kind of a cumulative effect that you're more likely to believe it. And 
And it's kind of like these people sort of drank their own Kool-Aid. They started believing their own messaging. And so I think that there's a mix of both of those things where people who get involved often are maybe vulnerable, maybe they're insecure, maybe they're looking for affirmation that they haven't achieved professionally, personally. Um, you know, the only person who's ever known how brilliant I was was my mommy. Mm-hmm. And when other people suddenly start telling you that you're really brilliant, even though what you're brilliant at being is a racist – it could feel very, I suppose, affirming and quite nice that finally people recognize your absolute genius. So I do feel like it is typically either more vulnerable people or, or people who are more narcissistic and more ego-driven who need that level of affirmation. I'm going to bring us back to Books. The Hidden Lives of Writers. Okay. And I am going to talk about that you write, Nakama, you write nonfiction and fiction. And those are two very different processes. And there's several things I want to know about that. I want to know, firstly, how you decide what project you're in the mood for and how your process differs once you've made that decision. So I think, like many writers, the project that I'm in the mood for is always the one that I'm not doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, true. it's, I hate that feeling. And I, it's, my brain does work in like, I have lots of little ideas going on at the same time. I do have to choose what I'm going to focus on. And that's based on a, a feasibility assessment in my head that I do. It's like, well, this is one that I'm actually going to finish. I mean, I have lots of book ideas that are, they're not right yet. They're not ripe. They're sitting on a tree in my brain and the fruit is growing and maybe they'll be ripe one day and maybe they won't. Who knows? Um, and <laughs> we both like that. We both reached for our pens yes, to write that. I down. like that. As I, do. that. So, <laughs> I reached first. It's mine. Um, but, and that's really important because I think particularly as a writer, you have to have lots of ideas and lots of, lots of input as well. Um, you have to be constantly adjusting yourself to, but like being on a moving suspension bridge, you know, where you've got to move your weight all the time. Um, I always have this thing where as I start a project, I have this brilliant idea for a new project that I should really be doing instead. So I've also learned in time that I have to kind of rein myself in there and be like, you can have that nice juicy project when you are finished this one. Um, writing is a job. And if you're going to commit to doing something, you have to set yourself tasks and, you know, word counts and things to finish. And I do – am in the fortunate position where having written a number of books, it is usually easier for me to sell my books um, or to, you know, sign a contract to have them published. And that helps a lot too. So having a um, publishing deadline um, is very helpful in terms of being productive <laughs> because very. if you're just doing it sort of randomly, uh, it's like, well, I'll get to, it. Oh, I can't do it today. I have to change the tires on my car. And unfortunately, I'm not one of those writers that wants to clean the house instead of writing. I wish I did. I'm really no, it's quite, terrible. it's I'm, terrible. Oh, you come to my, house anytime that you want to. Please, I'll do a trade exchange with you. I'll do something else in, in return. Any writers who want to clean instead of instead of uh, writing their books. Um, I My structure for writing has changed quite a lot over the last 15, 16 years, um, where I think when I started writing long form, so books in particular, I would still work a lot quite late at night. Um, and then with my children being small, that sort of started shifting and my writing hours started changing. Now I find my brain is more productive early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoy that time sort of before the office world has started. I mean, I also have a, a day job now, you know, mm-hmm. a proper, a proper job. Gosh, that's so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a freelance journalist and writer for a really long time. So to have a, a day job is a strange change. Um, but I like sort of morning times. I do like to be in the mood. Like I want that muse to come and bring me a cup of coffee in the morning. But sometimes the muse is sleeping late or not available or maybe visiting someone else. 
um, and dead. then you have to still the muse is dead. No, no the muse isn't dead. The muse just <laughs> and and then you sort of have to say to yourself, right? Well, today I'm still writing a thousand words anyway. Mm. Okay, um, stop there. Is that what it is for you? Is no, it a thousand words? No. What is your word count? What do you aim for? So it's completely random. Um, I'm not one of those structured people. I also don't. This will cause some horror to people. Um, you remember checkbooks in the days of checkbooks mm, yes. and the act of balancing one's check account. Unfortunately, we are old <laughs> enough to remember this. So I always knew exactly how much money I had in my check account and I never balanced my checkbook, right? Mm, yeah. Because I just knew. Yeah. So for fiction, I do not plot in advance. I have a rough idea of where it's going to end and then the book just goes where it's going to go. Okay. Um, and some days that is like a really big writing day because the story is just like, you know, it's just going and it's exciting. And I'm like, I don't even know what the characters are going to do. Um, and it's lovely. It's like watching a TV show in your brain. Um, and particularly for me, like if I'm doing action scenes or fight, it's very exciting because it's like very, for me, very visual in my brain. And then I have to sort of translate that into things. So I know certain points along the way of the map for fiction, but I do not know the story and I, I cannot plot it out. Um, and then of course I have to go back afterwards and think of all these holes that I've probably created in the plot through not plotting that out. I would have been much better if I'd balanced my checkbook, but still here I am today. Um, I think that with with novel writing in particular, it is very much about mood and deadline. So if I have a deadline, I write more. If I don't, I write less because then other things take precedence. Um, nonfiction, I'm a lot more structured because that has to have a specific outcome. So there are usually planned chapters. I usually have a book proposal that has already a chapter outline, um, which you kind of have to do to sell the book and to make sure it makes sense to everybody. Um, even with academic work, actually, you know, working with subheadings and knowing what are the points that I want to address is quite useful. So I'm learning in the nonfiction space how to balance my checkbook, so to speak. Um, but I have absolutely no routine and no schedule. Um, I suppose the counterbalance to that is I write all the time, mm. not always on the same thing. Okay. But I do believe that everything feeds into the same thing because it's all me yes. writing. So it doesn't matter whether I'm writing about Foucault or I'm writing about farm killings or I'm writing about detective stories with Sangomas. Yes. Um, they all connect. So whatever I'm writing is actually all towards the same big end project, which is me. Um, and so long as I'm kind of keeping up with ideas, then, then I'm okay. And I was going to, I was going to say last question on this, but it's probably not, but still, which is more fun for you or can't you really balance? I love writing fiction. It is excruciating. It is so hard because I suffer from the, you know, lack of confidence, especially as my, my last novel, which I really, it was actually quite good, um, came out in the middle of lockdown. And mm. honestly, it was so, Demoralizing. 100%. Um, I have never experienced anything like that in my life. Yeah. COVID uh, swallowed many books, it, sadly. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it was really just like, wow, this was supposed to be the, the, and that would have put me on a completely different trajectory. It was like, this was the, the second book in the series. It was really well done. Um, you know, the characters were strengthening. The writing was good. I felt a lot more confident in my writing. It was easier to write the second one in the series than the first one. Um, and it just disappeared yeah. into nothing. Um, so that's also partly why I haven't really written fiction since then, because it was just, it's like mourning a loss. Um, and then you also think, well, maybe I'm just 
terrible at this and this isn't what I should be doing. And it's so much easier to write nonfiction. I should just do that. Um, but I also want to tell these other weird stories that I have in my brain. Um, so, so I'm sort of relearning those exercises and those muscles for, for the, the, the kind of fiction stuff. And please know it happened to all of us. It's yeah. Everybody's, we everybody's both lost that, a book yeah. to COVID. Yeah. I thought the book that I brought out at the big, I had a book that launched that March, I think, like I, or that April. No, it was, it was in lockdown because we did an online thing. I thought that was going to be my great commercial breakthrough novel because it was more of a thriller than my usual writing. And that book, like people don't even know I wrote it. Yeah. It's very distressing, but it happened to all of us. Nahama, your um, two fiction books, Knucklebone and Three Bodies, they sort of straddle genres in a way that's interesting to me. Um, we're dealing with crime thrillers and, in a way, police procedurals, but also with an element of the occult. How was that received in, in terms of reviews and what you heard? Um, were people expecting one thing and surprised to find something else, or were they expecting one thing and delighted to find the occult element? Um, how, how was that received? Because it's something I've always been interested in doing. So, Knucklebone had the the kind of supernatural or the yeah mystical elements were a lot more prominent, and in Three Bodies it was much more of a straightforward crime story with implied but less sort of overt. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call it. I don't know. I think the phrase occult also tends to imply a sort of quite a negative history, and I'm searching in my brain for a better word, but I can't think of one right now. Supernatural is also maybe the best one that. It, we have a tradition in this country of women being killed for accused for being witches. So that's why I tend to try and avoid terms that play into that sort of landscape. For, Maybe for, metaphysical, for something um, like that. I don't know. We still, I was looking at something the other day where they referred to, um, Lauren Bierkus's, you know, first big book, Zoo City was her second, sec, third book. Um, it was her third book as Mouti Noir. Wow, Mouti Noir. And it was a good term, I think, for the time. And they were, and, and what I liked about it was that Knucklebone was included as kind of one of the newer books within that. But what the, the author, and I'm going to forget who wrote it, I'm so sorry, um, was acknowledging in this review of all these books was also how in the South African context, these aren't written just as speculative books, but they're also written in a way where the supernatural is very much part of everyday life. And I think that um, one of the reasons why those books are so well received and Knucklebone did receive a, got really a very nice reception, um, was because there is this understanding that in the South African context, many people who live in cities and whatever still also believe that there is other stuff going on and that is how they live their lives. And one of the things I said, I think it's on the, on, even on the, the back shout whatever of knucklebone which is just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it's not true so the fact that you don't believe in sangomas or ancestors or whatever else is going on there doesn't mean that it's not real and it's not happening for other people um and i think that's still valid so what we'd call it muti noir is a very much a reflection of almost the reality of how a large number of people in south africa exist and not just in south africa every culture has their own version of that sort of thing um i am very interested in mythologies in different communities including in yiddish um i started studying yiddish a number of years ago and there's a lot of stuff around yiddish mysticism and the occult there and um witches and wizards and magic and those sorts of things um and when we, I suppose when we start to accept that, uh, it's actually part of our lives and not, 
it's made up, but it's not made up in a sense, then it becomes more exciting in a way. So the landscape sort of opens up. And and that's very much areas that I'd like to continue to explore in my future work. Not always. I am interested in just straightforward crime, no magic. Um, I do so much work in this area that it would be really silly not to use some of the ideas that I have. But uh, I would say at my heart, the stories that I really want to write, the fiction stories that I really want to write, very much involve a touch of the speculative and strange. Did you get pushback as a white woman writing in the field of African mysticism? Mutinoir. I haven't seen any. Um, did you get any sort of questions about why you were venturing into this space? So I hope that I approached it in a very open and curious way and in a positive way. But in the course of writing Knucklebone and Three Bodies, I, well, for, starting off with Knucklebone, I consulted with three different Sangoma. Um, I paid them for their services. I consulted them before writing the book. I had Sangoma's review my book and correct me on terms that I'd used. I was also very clearly told where I was and wasn't welcome in my questions around certain knowledge. And it was done very kindly um, and very fairly. So if I asked questions about certain things, I was told that this was not for me because I wasn't, you know, unless I was an mm. actual participant and initiate, you know, if I, and, and I respected that as well. Um, so I think that one of the reasons why it was received well was because I made very strong efforts to make sure that what I was including was um, responsible, thoughtful, proactive, um, that I'd gone and sought information from people who knew um, that I'd been that and I did hold myself out to account so that if there was something wrong, um, I was able to identify that and to remedy that. Um, Having said that, it's still a bit scary sometimes. We think, what, you know, uh, what am I doing here? Um, am I, you know, am I an idiot? But I think it also points to the fact that there are ways to write about, um, things that are not yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we look at the sort of, uh, Lionel Shrivers of the world who, you know, say that, oh, well, it's ridiculous, you know, so mm-hmm. actually, no, there are ways and ways of writing about cultures, people who are not you, um, that can be harmful or that can be respectful. Um, and respectful doesn't have to mean, you know, uh, pussyfooting around and sort of not being critical or whatever it is. And I'm hoping that at least what I was trying to do was in the, the realm of the better side. Um, I think there's still work that needs to be done there for all of us. Um, it is very much a colonial mindset that allows me to imagine that I could, like an ethnographer, um, jump into any society in the world and write about them with knowledge. And this is a journalist mindset. Oh, I can go and, you know, visit some remote location somewhere and I can write about this community that I've never been to before because I'm a journalist and I know how to do these things. Um, and we're not all knowing. Uh, so a little bit more humility and willing to be corrected is, is good. I've always imagined that for people like you who write nonfiction and fiction, there must be a relief in coming to the fiction because there's less research involved. But from what you're saying, that is not the case for you. You have to research your, your fiction as deeply almost as a nonfiction book. Is, is that correct or? I think it depends on the, the book and the characters, but I'm awful with that. I, I am so nitpicky with myself. So if I'm writing something, even if it's an area that I'm familiar with, like a geographical area, I'm on Google Maps, I'm plotting locations, I'm going and checking the soil structure. I'm lo- like, oh, I'm just weird. I just, and so most of it doesn't even make its way into the actual words, but it, cre- it, it affirms or it, it bolsters my understanding of yes. the location. Um, 
because the worst thing for me would be to, you know, to say it's April and the air and, you know, and the air is muggy and everyone's like, the air is not muggy in April in that province. I will just you know? sit back from my microphone at this point to not give any real life examples of that happening to me. <laughs> <laughs> Nahama, we have touched on the fact that both in your nonfiction and your fiction writing, you venture into some very dark places how do you protect your own mental health when you are dwelling on these issues to such an extent i'm currently not doing a very good job of that and it's something i'm aware that i need to think about more clearly in the future um, because this type of work isn't going away from what i do two of my academic projects involve both involve murder to some extent one is um, building a homicide media tracker, so to to build a data collection tool for researchers and academics um, to help them collect better information at scale from news and other archives. And the other is a, a project that I'm doing with the mortuary, uh, Johannesburg Mortuary, to try and digitize some of their records. Wow. Um, and I'm learning a lot more about death in many ways. Um, sometimes it's quite upsetting. So... I don't know if it's too soon to talk about the new book that I've got coming out, but that talk, also talk. involves. Um, so I have a book coming out now on domestic violence killings. Is that nonfiction? It's nonfiction. Right. So it's it's called Domestic Terror, um, and it's all about intimate partner killings in South Africa, primarily men who kill their female partners because that's the majority of them. Um, and every time I – when I was doing the book on farm killings and I was reading through th- literally – thousands of news reports in English and Afrikaans on farm killings. Um, it's very unpleasant, even at second, third hand, to read about those things. Unpleasant is a euphemism. It's overwhelming. Um, it's depressing. It makes me cynical about South Africa. Mm. Um, it makes me feel unsafe. Uh, it upsets me. It, it overwhelms me. I become unresponsive to people around me in my home because I'm so overwhelmed by what I'm reading. Um, and then I am somehow able to step back from that and kind of continue with, I don't know, the rest of life. The domestic violence book, I'm still in that stage where I suppose it's recent enough that a lot of those stories still float in my head. But reading those stories were just also beyond unpleasant because they also felt very real and very mm-hmm. close to home um, in terms of con- coercive control, um, stalking, harassment. Um, it also made me think about times in my own life where I've experienced levels of stalking or harassment or attempt coercive control from a, a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also very eerie where you sort of think, was I in that space? Um, and it's completely overwhelming. As a contrast, no, not as a contrast to that, as a complement to that, I have started in the last year learning more about the mortuary processes because I, I do understand that if I'm going to write about death, I should also be able to understand the many facets of how it expresses itself. And that confronts other realities and other questions, especially I'm growing older. Um, you know, you have to look at your own mortality. What does being dead mean? It's quite strange. Um, it's quite philosophical in some respects. It's quite emotional in other respects. And I don't have all the right tools to deal with it. Um, 
And it's something that I'm exploring with other colleagues who are looking, for example, at how journalists are exposed to trauma. Mm. How do they deal with it? Even if they're, even a, an editor, you know, who's mm. editing stories about war or, you know, maybe you're not in the field. What is, what is that sort of secondary exposure to trauma do to you? I'll probably write a paper about it. I'm sure. It'll be. So that, that'll be my response. My, my response is compartmentalized, but, um, I did a course last year on unidentified human decedents which fits forensic pathology runs together with uh, the Red Cross. And we have several hundred cases every year in the Joburg mortuary alone where the people have died, but they're unidentified. And so there's a program that tries to capture as much information as possible about the decedents, which ultimately is quite intimate because you have to Mm -hmm. fingerprint a corpse and take photographs of all the clothing and all the items that were found with them and identifying marks and try and capture information that might be useful in the future should somebody come forward and then you can finally match this person with a family who maybe is missing a loved one. And that completely undid me, that process. Mm. Um, and I think I was just very fortunate to have, you know, very supportive people around me who could actually especially like literally at that time. So I could sort of collapse into a, a small heap and be loved and cared for. And that was important, but it's a lot actually. <laughs> it is a lot. And I, I have a very strong instinct to protect myself. I won't read your nonfiction books. That's how I protect myself completely from upsetting knowledge. And I, I'm always fascinated how people don't protect themselves. Do you ever just want to go, I'm done here. I'm going to write a nice children's story about a dog. And I'm, I'm done with this violence. I'm done with this death. Yes, but I also have this really annoying, my origin story, what, wanting to be right. But actually, I realize the origins of wanting to be right isn't so that I can be right, but it's because I want to fix things. And you can only fix things by knowing about them. I can only fix things by knowing about them. And what I'm trying to build now as an academic and as a writer is this weird interdisciplinary bridge that kind of exists but doesn't really exist in our context where there's so much incredible work being done and research around violence in South Africa. Some of it's not connected, but I also get to work with the most remarkable Mm. people. Mm. I really, I mean, intellectually, academically, but in terms of the, the service that these people do that is hidden and unseen from the rest of the world often, it's quite incredible and quite inspiring. And these are people who, you know, make a very important difference. So I'm not, when I was young, I thought I would probably be an activist, you know, mm. um, and I would save the world that way. Uh, I'm not. So w- that's not my, I'm not going to Sunberg, you know, I'm not going and doing that. But what I'm doing is I'm doing what I'm good at, uh, what I think I'm good at, because I think that's probably the most leverage I can get out of the things that I think are important. So climate change is also hugely important to me, and I'm starting to incorporate that more into the rest of my work, because I think we need to be more explicit about it. But I also think I can probably bring more value to the discussion by using my writing and my academic work and my public whatever presentations, um, then by quitting all of those things and going and working at a at a game reserve. Although that would be quite nice. That would be quite peaceful. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we spoke to Hamilton Wendy, the war reporter, in a previous episode and asked him how he managed to do the things that he did and still does. And he was so sustained by the sense of purpose, by the sense that what he was mm. doing in bearing witness to these things was so important that that kind of buoyed him up and saved him. And it sounds as though 
you have a similar sense of, of purpose and the importance of what you're doing and that that sort of gives you the strength to carry on. What's weird is I never know where my books will land. Like even when I publish my book on femicide, when Quela publishes, when Naima from Quela contacted me and said, I believe you're doing work on femicide, you know, would you like to publish a book? And I was like, who would want to read a book about dead woman, really? And she was convinced that it would be a good idea. And even with the farm killings book, um, we had, well, I, I didn't do any publicity around farm killings because I didn't want to be exposed to a very active right wing mm. that targeted me on social media anyway and I didn't want to be targeted in person why would I set myself up for that like constantly be sort of the target of uh, really a lot of unpleasant stuff but then I have people who I meet randomly somewhere who say oh your book on this thing was so important to me for sometimes for their studies sometimes it helped them make maybe they work in a legal profession or in a something else it, it helped them make sense of something it helped them to share a concept with somebody else. So so it is fulfilling something of importance. I'm not always aware what those things are. And I'm hoping that, yeah, through creating these sort of narratives and creating information and sharing it in an open way that we, we reach a point of – also, I said this in the Farm Killings book, realizing that we are all in the same boat. There's no crime-free future for South Africa that doesn't also involve – a drop in violence for black South Africans. Mm. There is no protecting white farmers without protecting black farmers and mm. black farm workers. Like people who sort of like, my, I'm a taxpayer. I'm like, baby, we're all taxpayers. Okay. Mm. Um, there's no solution that fixes your own driveway and your own road. Mm. And that doesn't fix the rest of the country's roads. Mm. The world just doesn't work that way. So, you know, if I can contribute in, narratively to people understanding that there is a world outside their own home or their own community that they might want to consider, that would be good. Well, I think that's a brilliant note to end on, but uh, we would like to ask you our normal closing out question, which is, what are you consuming to fill up your creative well? What are you reading or listening to or watching that's made an impression on you lately? I was going to say as a flippant answer, honeycomb chocolate. But, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, that sounds lovely. No, it's a result from being tired from traveling too much and trying to catch up. What I have been reading because I've been traveling a bit. So I have to also say I don't read very serious books. What a relief. I'm <laughs> I, so pleased. Just not good at that. My, my ex-husband used to mock me for it all the time. You know, he'd be reading Jeffrey Eugenides and I would be reading, you know, Marion Keys. Well, I mean, and why not? You know, and a lot of science fiction and fantasy. But um, with my travels recently, I have found a new author who I'm reading. So I was flying back from Mumbai mm -hmm. and in the airport at Mumbai for an insanely cheap price. I love how cheap books are in India. I bought a book. It's not new. It's called Rum by a an Indian author called uh, Amish. And um, he's like the best-selling sort of author in the country, whatever, and sold, you know, 70 trillion books. And it is a um, fictionalized sort of retelling of the legend of Rama and Sita, and it's fantastic. So I've just read the first book in paper because I actually got the book, and then the rest I'm going to read on my Kindle. It's really lightweight, but it's also textured and – I don't know. It's just very, it's great. It's fun to read. And especially if you're on a flight for five and a half hours, mm. it's perfect. And I love that. And then what I did for my second flight was something I'd been meaning to do for a while and had been sitting on my, my book. And I actually think both of these authors are probably unpolitically correct to some extent. I mean, I'm, I don't know enough, but I, I suspect Amish might be too much on the nationalist side of kind of Hinduism, but who knows? And then I, 
I hope nobody hates me for this. So I reread Jilly Cooper, Ridal, Riders and Rivals. Mm-hmm. It was so great. Oh my, I was fantastic. I just, I couldn't think of anything better, like a giant comfort food book. Okay. Yes. It's full of misogynists and there's definitely some problems that we could identify now. Um, but it's kind of, you know, like Br- British countryside, late 1970s with the, you know, a show jump, show jumping community and everybody's screwing everyone. It was just glorious. So those have been my extremely intellectual reads for the moment. I would never have seen that last recommendation coming. <laughs> I am delighted by it. <laughs> Nahama, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciated it and we've enjoyed what you've had to say. We are looking forward to your upcoming nonfiction work. Is that Domestic Killings in South Africa? Yeah, it's called Domestic Terror. Domestic um, Terror. Yeah, it's got a very creepy cover. So, And when can we expect that? This It'll be year? out from the 25th of August. Fantastic. Excellent. I hope everyone checks it out and I hope we have more fiction forthcoming from you in the future mm. as well. Thank you for your time. Gail, that was so interesting to listen to. I'm so glad that Nahama managed to find the time in what sounds like an extremely busy life to come and talk to us. I felt quite, and I've I've had this occasionally with other guests who've had a feeling like my life is very small and my interests are very mundane mm-hmm. compared to just the extraordinary brain power and variety of interests and drive some of our guests have. You know, I'd, I like to think that you and I are productive writers, but wow, she has done and published a lot. <laughs> and and our concerns, and I'm going to insult us both in this, but really our, our writing is so unimportant in the big picture and she's doing such important work. Yes, and, and that is the main thing that I took from it, that she really has a purpose-driven life which I suspect is the title of a self-help book that I've, <laughs> has just popped into my brain. But it, it really is. Her fiction and her nonfiction feed into each mm-hmm. other. She just produces work that is important on a national and an international scale. And I imagine that that must be very motivating. Well, she seems to know who she is mm. and what she's trying to achieve with her life. And Oh my God, I wish I had that certainty. (laughs) I feel like I'm waiting to grow up and discover who I'm going to be. It must have been inspiring to you. What did it stimulate for you? It was inspiring on so many levels. But what was interesting for me is something happened that doesn't happen to me usually in our podcast is that my day job brain um, was stimulated to do with advertising regulation, to do with truth and misleading claims I deal with misleading information every day in my Mm -hmm. work Um, Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of what she talks about is about fact checking and misleading information and so a lot of the things she was saying I was kind of making day job notes Mm -hmm. which is not something that happens to me a lot and and I can see I'm going to be pulling out the notebook I use for the podcast and cross-pollinating my day job notebook Mm -hmm. and taking those thoughts further. Um, So that was a new experience for me. Well, I like that a lot. And uh, in terms of writing tips, what have you got for us this week? So I'm going to, I I may even have spoken about this before, I'm not sure, but I, I want to talk about the importance of not using fancy words when an ordinary word will do. And the reason it's on my mind is I got an email, I think, yesterday about a meeting 
and this meeting has not happened. It, mm-hmm. it was going to be a one-off meeting. And the person writing the email said, the meeting will resume at nine o'clock. Okay. And I went into small panic. Resume, resume. When did it start? What, yes. have I missed something? And I went back over the email trail like, have I missed something? And then I realized that she was trying to say commence. Right. And right, because right. she wasn't, didn't have quite a grip on all the words, she'd said resume instead of commence. And she should have just said start. It will begin. Or oh, some begin. ordinary and the meeting English will begin word. at nine o'clock. A good English word that you are familiar with and means what you want to say. And I think we often see in all types of writing, fiction, non-fiction, academic, professional, people trying to show how clever they are. Mm. You don't need to show anyone how clever you are because they're going to feel that you're clever when you make them feel clever. Mm. And if they understand what you're saying, they're going to feel clever. If they don't understand what you're saying, they're going to feel stupid. Mm -hmm. So make your reader in whatever type of writing you're doing, make your reader feel like they're the clever one in the room. Yes, yes, yes. And some of the most literary high register books I've ever read have been simply written. Absolutely. Absolutely. The really good ones. And then there are those dreadful ones in between where you can't understand a word and you suddenly realize that the critics have loved them because they didn't understand a word either and they didn't want to admit it. (laughs) Fiona, what is your lesson for the week? Uh, I think it ties in with what I was saying at the beginning, which is my position of being a real beginner in the screenwriting space and not being afraid of learning new things and adopting a new idiom and getting out of your comfort zone and really being a rank beginner with a steep learning curve in front of you. Don't shy away from that, whether it's a new genre or a new format of writing, whatever it is, don't be afraid to challenge yourself. I absolutely agree with that. So if you have read Nahama Brody's work, and I think many of us have, if you have thoughts on living a purpose-driven life as a writer, if you have tried any of the techniques we're talking about, please get in touch. We're on email. We're on all social media across the board. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.